from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds. The verdict has been announced in the trial for former police officer Derek Chauvin. The jury in the case has ruled that Chauvin is guilty in all three charges placed against him. We'll cover the case in this week's episode. Also, we talked to Irene Pepperberg. She's an associate at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. She's known for raising Alex, possibly the most intelligent African gray parrot in the world. Also, we're now broadcasting on KGVM, a community radio station in Montana. Tune in to us every week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. on 95.9 FM. All this and more on this week's episode of News Nerds, episode 42. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and don't touch your radio dial, because after this, it's News Nerds. Yesterday, the jury in the trial for former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin found Chauvin guilty on all counts. The trial's closing arguments began on Monday, and in just 10 hours, a final decision was made by the jury. Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on George Floyd's neck, who was an African-American, was charged with second-degree manslaughter, second-degree murder, and third-degree murder. Chauvin was brought into custody as he awaits his sentencing, which is expected to take place in eight weeks. For citizens with no criminal history, the state of Minnesota recommends 12 and a half years for unintentional second-degree murder. But if Judge Peter Cahill decides that there were aggravating factors in the murder, then sentencing could extend to 40 years. Aggravating factors are conditions that expand the intensity of a crime. After the verdict, Chauvin was handcuffed and led into another room. Minneapolis braced for protests that could escalate to violent riots Tuesday. 3,000 National Guard troops were called to Minneapolis, and 1,000 officers and state troopers were on the scene. After the verdict was read by Judge Peter Cahill, cheers broke out from George Floyd Square in Minneapolis. Across the country, similar celebrations broke out from those who opposed Chauvin. After the verdict was announced, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris addressed the nation from the White House. Quote, I can't breathe. We can't let those words die with him. We must not turn away. We can't turn away. Unquote, said Biden in his speech. Elsewhere in the address, Harris added, quote, A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer, and the fact is we still have work to do. We still must reform the system. Unquote. Let's now go to my interview with Dr. Irene Pepperberg. She's an associate at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Irene Pepperberg is an associate at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. So, at a young age, you trained um, some of your own budgies. How did this early introduction to birds affect your later life? I think I actually imprinted on them. Um, I was a very young, that's Athena. Athena, cool it. I was very young. I lived above a store. There were no children to play with. Um, my father worked very hard. He was a school teacher. He was also taking courses right after school, and he was taking care of his mother, who was quite ill. So I barely saw him. And my mother really 
you know, she was not that interested in taking care of me that much. I mean, she took care of all my physical needs, but not my social ones. So I basically, the only creature that I really interacted with all day was my budgie. And so I became very strongly attached to birds. And I think that affected me, you know, throughout my life. I always had budgies when I was a child. I took one to college with me, even though it was illegal. And when I was interested in leaving chemistry, the idea of working with birds was, you know, right there. So. I should just mention before we go on that you have your birds behind you and I have my bird behind me. So there's going to be some background noise, but that's fine. So you just mentioned that you were interested in chemistry in college. Why did you decide to do that? So I start in chemistry. I was, at first I was very scared of chemistry. And so I borrowed the chemistry textbook from the student who was a year ahead of me. And the summer before I took chemistry, I started reading the chemistry textbook and found it was actually pretty interesting. And I really ended up liking it. I did very well. Um, I was top of my class in high school and my chemistry teacher, um, Mr. Schwarzenbach, really, you know, was very, very encouraging. And he told me, you know, hey, you know, you've read about Marie Curie and Irene Joliet Curie, Irene Joliet Curie, spelling it, saying it properly. He said, you know, you, you, could, you could do that. You could be that way. So it was, you know, very strongly supportive. And again, this was in the 1960s. And the idea of women in science still wasn't, I mean, it was happening, but it wasn't, wasn't that common. And yet here was somebody really encouraging me to go on ahead. So you're the most famous for Alex, which was one of your first parrots. How did you end up finding Alex? So we went to a bunch of different pet stores looking for a bird. And a lot of the birds, it was clear they had been, you know, wild caught. Anytime you went up to the cage, the bird would run back and hide and scream. Um, and then we went found a pet store in Chicago where the birds were pretty much habituated to people. And I had called them beforehand um, in January and I asked them about, you know, do they have any gray parrots? And they said, yeah, we have a bunch of them. They're about, you know, six months old or thereabouts, maybe younger. And then when I went to see them in um, June, the guy, he didn't know I was the same person. And we walked in, he said, yeah, I have a bunch of grays. They're about a year old. And so I figured, well, you know, he doesn't even know I'm the same person. And yet, you know, the time is, is right. So they must be about a year old. And there were eight or nine of them in a cage. And I said I wanted to buy one. And so he took out a butterfly net, scooped one up, flipped it on his back, clipped his beak, clipped his toenails, clipped his wings and said, here, put him in a box and said, here. And um, he had asked me if I wanted to choose one myself. And I said, I don't know, I had no idea. And of course, I didn't want anybody to think that there was, I was picking out a special bird. So I had just told him to choose one himself. So it was just an accident that I got the actual bird that was Alex. Why did you name Alex, Alex? For avian learning experiment. Alex uh, died in the early, er, the late 2000s. So if Alex had lived longer, uh, what do you think Alex would have gone on to learn? Well, I think we would have been able to do a lot more with numbers. I think he would have done all the work that we've done now with Griffin, probably even some more work. We would have done a lot more with him with optical illusions. 
Um, it would have been really exciting, but such is life. Right. You bought Alex at the pet store. How did you begin to train Alex to do these amazing things he ended up doing? So before I got him, I had read the literature and was looking to see if people had done this before, had done any training. And most of the training was kind of scenario conditioning, which wasn't working very well with any of the animals in terms of trying to train them to communicate with humans. But there was this one paper from a German ethologist, an ethologist, somebody who studies animal behavior. And he had been studying bird songs in the wild, how do birds learn their songs from one another, and noticed that you know, the younger birds would sit there and listen to the older birds sing and watch what was happening during the interactions. And he got a job as an assistant professor in a laboratory in Germany. And there the senior professors basically tell you what to do. And his you know, senior professor said, here, here's a great parrot. I want you to teach it to talk to us in German. So thinking about, well, how did the you know, baby birds learn song? Maybe this will work the same way with the parrot. So he started using a modeling technique where two humans demonstrated to the bird what he wanted it to learn. So one person was the model for the bird's behavior and its rival for the attention of the principal trainer. And the principal trainer was the one who actually, you know, would train the other human in the presence of the bird. So he would say things like, good morning, what's your name? And the bird would say, good morning, my name is Laura. And that's what the person would say. And the bird would watch this kind of interaction and realize that this person was getting lots of attention, getting treats, things like that. So the bird would start to imitate the model. So we decided we would do that, but because DeepMar Toad's procedure didn't necessarily allow the bird to ask questions, we decided we would exchange roles of model rival and trainer so that one person was not always a questioner and the other person the answer, answerer, the respondent, so the bird could see that it could ask questions as well. And we also gave the bird what we call referential rewards. Tote would give the bird you know, little treats whenever it did something right, but the treats weren't related to what the bird was actually talking about. So we decided we would first train with labels for objects and then the bird could get those objects as its reward. Do you think if you had uh, picked another parrot that the results from your experience would have been different? Or do you think uh, you taught Alex to do all these things and you could have done it with a whole different parrot? Well, I think, I don't think Alex was a particularly Einstein parrot. I think other parrots could have learned. Not every great parrot talks. Not every great parrot has the curiosity that Alex had, but certainly I've worked with other parrots, particularly Griffin, and he's learned quite a bit, not as much as Alex. A lot of that has to do with the fact that um, Alex would interrupt all of his sessions. But, um, you know, so I don't, again, I think that Alex did have a kind of curiosity that was very helpful. And I think that other great parrots would have done quite well um, some, some of course would not. And just like people, you know, some people are really, really smart at doing certain things and they're, you know, not good at those. Some other people are not good at those things. So, you know, I think birds vary a lot the same way that humans vary.
Can you give me some examples of the tasks that Alex could complete in his lifetime? So he learned to identify about 100 plus different objects, including colors and shapes and different materials. He could, understood concepts of, of categories. So he understood not just that something was green, but that green was a particular color. And then I could ask him the color of different objects. So he had a sort of a hierarchical understanding. And because he knew the labels for these categories, so he knew the label for color and shape and material. So he understood these categorical concepts. He understood concepts of bigger and smaller. So we could, we could ask him what color bigger, what color smaller for any two objects. He understood concepts of same and different. And that's not just identity versus non-identity, but he could actually look at two objects and tell us what about them was same or different. So they could be the same color, but different shape and different material. He understood numbers exactly up to about eight. And that's not what, you know, some, a lot of animals, almost every animal we've tested has what we call an approximate number system. So they know that something is about five or about six. But if you ask them to identify six things, you know, they'll say six more frequently than not, but lots of times they'll call it five or seven and numbers on those, the other edges. Whereas Alex really knew that this was exactly six. And if you gave him a tray with, you know, five, seven and eight things on it and ask him what color six, he'd say none because there was no six things on it. He didn't give you the color of the set that was closest to it. Well, that's really fascinating. And I, I did, I, I have learned a little bit about Alex from your Moth Radio Hour uh, segment, but this gives me even more insight into Alex's life. So explain why you compared Alex's intelligence to one of a four-year-old's. Okay, because when he passed away, he was doing the kinds of, of cognitive tasks that four-year-old children do, particularly with respect to, say, number. Now, his communication skills were nowhere near that of a four-year-old. It was more like about a one-and-a-half or a two-year-old. But in terms of cognitive skills, so in terms of number concepts, children have to be about four years old before they really understand these exact number concepts that I was describing. And he could do that. The same is true with concepts of same and different. Children have to be about four years old. Now, again, some children do it a little bit earlier, some a little bit later, four is an average, of really understanding concepts of same and different, not just identity versus non-identity, but real same and different. Alex's last words were, you be good, I love you, see you tomorrow. Why were those Alex's last words? That was always what we said to one another at night before we left. So we had a little good night routine and it would be, you know, you be good, I love you. And he'd say, I love you too. You know, I'm going to go eat dinner. I said, that's right. I'm going to go eat dinner too. I love you. So we go back and forth. So, you know, and he died overnight. So those were his last words. It was just part of our good night routine. And he only lived to be 31, which seems old, but you say that uh, an African gray parrot usually lives to be around 45 in captivity. So were you surprised when he was, uh, when he passed away? Very much. Um, 
one of my colleagues in the Netherlands actually had a bird in his veterinary practice that lived, a gray parrot that lived to 99, okay? So the fact that they lived to 45 in captivity is mainly because a lot of people don't know what to feed them or how much exercise to give them and things like that. Um, but we were very shocked and according to my vet, it was probably a heart arrhythmia. Um, there was no, when she did the necropsy, there was nothing obvious as to what would have killed him. On the Alex Foundation's website, uh, there are two living parrots, Athena and Griffin, who I know I've heard a little bit. What have they taught you and how have they expanded on Alex's intelligence? Okay, so Griffin, as I said, Griffin doesn't know as many labels as Alex did because Alex would interrupt all of his sessions. So we'd be training him and we'd say, you know, Griffin, what color? And Alex would be on the next cage and say, no, tell me what shape. And Griffin would shrug his little birdie shoulders and look at Alex, look at me and go, mm, what should I say? Or he, Alex would, you know, sit there and while Griffin said a very tentative little green, Alex would say, no, green. So Griffin was a bit inhibited. And so Griffin doesn't have the cure. I don't know if he innately doesn't have the curiosity, but Griffin is the little, you know, student who says, tell me what I have to do to get the A. And then he does it and he does it very well. So we've done some very interesting studies with him on optical illusions, which shows that he can under, can recognize something called a Kamitsa figure, which imagine a blue piece of paper with three black Pac-Men on it arranged in a triangle. And if you look at it, it looks to you that there's actually a blue triangle there, but there isn't. Your brain just sort of sees that. And he could he sees it the same way. He could understand occluded objects. So if, imagine a triangle with a circle on one corner, you know, obliterating that corner. And he still understood it was a triangle just because a piece of it was seemed to be missing. Didn't matter. Um, we did his, the most exciting study we've done with him was what's called a four cup exclusion task, where he was better than, you know, five-year-old children. And this is basically inference by exclusion. A simple version of it, which is the easiest one to, to explain, is imagine I have two cups and I put like, you know, a yellow jelly bean under one or a green jelly bean under the other. You see me do that. I take the tray, I turn around, I take, you can't see it, but I'm taking one jelly bean out and I put the tray back in front of you and I eat one of the jelly beans. So if you want the other jelly bean, you have to remember which color jelly bean was under which cup. All right, so that's the idea of if, you know, maybe A, maybe B, not A, therefore B. And so the issue though, is that that's a very simple task and it doesn't truly test it. So we did a much more complicated one that's really hard to describe without, you know, visuals, but it's a four cup exclusion and he did better than, than young children. We also did a four cup task, which is a, um, a visual search. So imagine you have four different colored pom-poms on a tray and you cover them with four little black cups and then you swap, make swaps. So you, you know, position two is now position four and position one is at position three and you keep doing that. And until we got to, you know, four, we started with two cups and two swaps and then we worked our way up to four cups and four swaps. We did it with six to eight year old children and the children 
fell apart after three cups and four swaps. They couldn't go to four cups and three swaps. Um, Griffin was as good as Harvard undergraduates until we got to the four cups and basically three swaps. And then he was still way above chance. He was just a little bit less good as they were. And he was better than at, at four cups and two swaps. And he was much less good than at four cups and four swaps, but he was still above chance. So that's called visual working memory manipulation. And he was really, really good at that. Um, we also did some, a bunch of Piagetian studies. Um, Piaget was a Swiss uh, psychologist studying child development. And this is another reason why we say that Griffin's about the level of a six-year-old child. Um, we did a study and we did this also with Athena. She's much younger, she's only eight, um, on what's called liquid conservation. You may have heard of this if you don't know the term. So imagine I show you two glasses, they're half full with juice, and I ask you, they're identical glasses, and I ask you which one you want, and you kind of giggle and you say it doesn't matter. Then I take a short fat cup and a tall thin cup, and I pour the identical glasses into these. And then if I ask you what you want, you know, at your age, you would say, well, I don't know, I want the tall thin one because it's more fun to drink out of, but it's the same amount of juice. But if you ask a child, until, until they're about five years old, the children will say something like, well, I want the short fat one because there's more, or I want the tall thin one because there's more. And you say, but you just told me it was the same amount of juice. And they say, no, now there's more. And so they don't understand that the amount of liquid is conserved even when you change the shape of the container. And our birds weren't fooled. We did a bunch of different studies with them and they did very, very well. So did two other pet birds that belonged to people who worked in my lab. So we done that. And then we did a probability study with Griffin. So imagine a big, a big sort of like mm, box, all right? And Piaget did this with children. So you put one blue ball in and three white balls in. They see you putting the balls in, you mix it up, and you take one ball out and you ask, what color do you think this is? And children, you know, your age, you know, children your age or, you know, older will say, well, it's probably white because there's, you put in three white and, you know, the chance of you taking a white one out is greater. If you ask a, again, a three and a half or four year old, they might say blue and you say, why? And they say, because blue is my favorite color. Or they say something like, well, you put one, one blue one in and you took one thing out, so it has to be the blue one. So they don't understand anything about probability. And we tested Griffin and he matched the probabilities through like 96 trials. So those are the kinds of things. We also did the marshmallow test with Griffin. Um, again, I don't know, you probably know what the test is if you don't know the name of it. So uh, Walter Michelle did this with young children about four years old and he put them in the lab and he put a plate with a big, nice marshmallow in front of them and said, okay, I'm gonna run an errand. Um, if you can sit here and not eat that marshmallow until I get back, I'll bring back a second marshmallow for you. And he left. And about, you know, only, I think it was only about 30% of these four-year-olds could wait for 15 minutes. Most of them just ate it. A lot of them, a lot of them though, that did wait, did a lot of interesting behaviors. They would sing to themselves, they would turn around, 
They would get up and dance. They would kind of distract themselves. And 30 years later, Michel interviewed the children he could find. And it turns out those that had waited had a lot better executive function the rest of their lives. They had better jobs. They had been to better colleges. Their marriages lasted longer, all because they could delay gratification. They could see, you know, what was a better thing to do down the end instead of taking, you know, the easy, easy task. So we did this with our birds and we did it with Griffin for waiting for better, not waiting for more, but waiting for better. And he would wait for up to 15 minutes for a better treat. And other people have done it with birds and birds seem to be able to wait for better. Nobody has shown birds to wait for more. We're in the middle of a study seeing if, if he can wait for more. You have a few books and for listeners who haven't read them, what do they discuss? So the Alex studies is the first book and that talks about the first 20 years of the research. It explains our training techniques, it talks about all the different papers that we published in the first 20 years of the work with Alex. Alex and me is a memoir. It's a very personal story of my life with Alex. And it's not, it's not data driven. It's just a story of our life. It's kind of a longer version of the moth story. Well, Dr. Irene Pepperberg, it was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, and good luck with your budgie. On Wednesday, Independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Democratic Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal introduced legislation that aims to make college tuition free for most Americans. The bill would pay for college tuitions by taxing some Wall Street transactions. The bill only applies to families earning a maximum of $125,000 per year. Under the proposal, public four-year academies and community colleges would be free to eligible students. In a statement, Representative Jayapal said, quote, While President Biden can and should immediately cancel student debt for millions of borrowers, Congress must ensure that working families never have to take out these crushing loans to receive a higher education in the first place, unquote. Jayapal's and Sanders' colleagues in the Congress of the United States have been under pressure to pass similar legislation regarding college tuition. According to a Pew Research poll, which was conducted in January of 2020, over 12,838 adults, 83% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents support free tuition college, while only 39% of Republicans support it. Over 10 years, Sanders and Jayapal say that their legislation would raise $2.4 trillion. The bill includes a 5 tenths percent tax on stock trades, a 5 thousandths percent tax on derivatives, and a 1 tenth percent fee on bonds. Also in the bill is an expansion of the Federal Pell Grant. The Federal Pell Grant is a subsidy granted to students to pay for college education. Currently, the grant only applies to select groups of students. In the proposed legislation, Jayapal and Sanders double the current Pell Grant's maximum per academic year to $13,000. The $13,000 could be used for food and other non-academic expenses. Bernie Sanders said in a statement, quote, If we are going to have the kind of standard of living that the American people deserve, we need to have the best educated workforce in the world. It is absolutely unacceptable that hundreds of thousands 
of bright young Americans do not get a higher education each year, not because they are unqualified, but because their family does not have enough money, unquote. Let's go now to the News Nerds Geographical Location Challenge. Let's start with our United States listeners who get the first place badge internationally with 97% of all News Nerds listeners. In second place, we have Norway with 1% of all News Nerds listeners. And in third place, we have Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Germany, India, France, the Philippines, Switzerland, Spain, and Portugal. Let's go to the United States, where Virginia is winning with 15% of all listeners in second place. Ohio with 9% of all listeners. And finally, in third place, California with 6% of all United States listeners. And that's it for this Geographical Location Challenge. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to News Nerds on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and please become a subscriber on those three sites. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, bye-bye.